I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This episode is brought to you by Boombox Gifts, memory boxes filled with personal messages and photos from friends and family for your next special occasion. Check it out at boomboxgifts.com. I'm excited to be here today with Dina Mose, who's the author of The Buddha Sat Right Here, A Family Odyssey Through India and Nepal. She has a BA in literature and an MS in nursing from Yale University. An essayist, storyteller, and songwriter, Dina is the mother of two girls and currently lives in California. Her book recently won first place in the Indie Publishers Book Awards in Travel and also first place in the Next Generation Indie Awards in Travel. So welcome to Dina. Thank you so much. I'm really glad to be here today. So, Dina, can you tell listeners what The Buddhist Set Right Here is about and what inspired you to write it? Sure. So, the shortest answer is that my book is a memoir of adventure, motherhood, and love woven into a spiritual journey. And to expand on that a little, in 2014, I was a mother who had pretty much had it all. I was a busy home birth midwife with a very successful practice. I have two amazing daughters who were thriving. I had a marriage, a house, a yard, a dog, a cat, et cetera, et cetera. And from the looks of it, it looks like everything was swell. But inside, something deep inside me was, was eroding, and I felt hollow, and a lot of feelings came up that were, that were not joyful. I wasn't content, and I got this crazy idea that we needed to just change it up completely, and so we rented out our house, we shuttered our businesses, and my family took an eight-month backpacking journey through India and Nepal. <laughs> which was a wild thing to do. It had always been my bucket list place to go. It had been my dream. And I thought I almost went to India several times before I had kids. And each time something happened and I ended up not going. And so right in the middle of raising my kids, I thought, I don't want to wait until they're grown and do this at some point in the future. And when I realized that they could each carry their own belongings in their backpack, I decided we should just do this. That's amazing. I feel like I can't even get my son to pick up his backpack. He like wheels his backpack to <laughs> like five feet to the car. So the fact that your kids are like carrying their belongings on their back through India is like humbling. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, this didn't come out of thin air. You know, we live in fairly rural California and we had done a lot of camping and backpacking and trekking into music festivals and places like that with them through their whole childhoods. So it wasn't it wasn't completely out of thin air. They were used to fairly rugged travel. They were used to carrying their stuff in backpacks at times to get where they needed to go. And our enthusiasm for the trip was really contagious. They were very excited to embark on this adventure with us. Tell me a little more about why India and how also this became a pilgrimage and what pilgrimage means to you. Mm-hmm. Well, Dina suggested I ask her that question, which is a great question. So I just <laughs> want to give her credit for that one. <laughs> so I've always considered myself a spiritual seeker. I grew up Jewish. When I lived in New York in the 90s, I belonged to a beautiful circle of sort of Wiccan practitioners. And then I began to study Buddhism about 18 years ago. And when I learned about Buddhism, it just really resonated with me as, you know, these principles of cultivating love and compassion in yourself and how that reflects out into the world just rang so true to me. I just thought, where's this been all my life? And 
became sort of a student of Buddhism. And of course, the Buddha lived in India and he, he was actually born in Nepal, but then he lived in India. He sat under a tree in India and awakened to enlightenment. And there's still a place there where you can go, where there's a tree that marks that spot. And it's a very holy pilgrimage site. We spend a good deal of time there in my book. And then also in India, there's large communities of Tibetan refugees because in case people don't know, you know, Tibet is now in occupied China. It's now occupied by China and has been for many, many years. And so there's been a big erosion of Tibetan culture and Buddhist traditions there. So there's a lot of refugees in Nepal and India, and they're building monasteries and keeping the traditions alive, keeping the spiritual path alive that is from Tibet. And so it had, oh, and my husband, Adam, had spent a year in India when he was in his 20s. So we had all these connections. It had always been my bucket list place, even though I knew it was going to be hard travels and confronting at times and really challenge us. The idea of a pilgrimage is that it's a journey that changes you, that's Mm -hmm. transformative. So it's not a vacation and you don't come back the same. And so with that intention, we set out on this trip. That's amazing. And boy, did it change us (laughs) (laughs) in so many ways. So in the opening section of your book, you have yourself trekking through a storm, basically, and reflecting, what a difference from the life I left behind, I think, as I trudge along. Our American life was a juggling act, and I was constantly dropping balls. Here, and you itemized all the balls you were dropping. Here, I have one task, walk, no schedule to keep, no to-do list, nobody paging me or pulling at my attention. Just walk, one foot in front of the other, wiping the snow from my eyes. I revel in the simplicity, the focus. Which is great. So take me back to that moment right there. Yeah, I call that my Annapurna epiphany. The beginning of the book sort of drops you into the middle of the story. Mm -hmm. So this was about halfway through our trip, and we were in Nepal on a trek. And that moment was really about my family kind of got ahead of me, and then it started to snow, and suddenly I was all alone. Uh, I knew they were just ahead, you know, just out of sight. I'm always the slowest hiker. I'm not an athlete myself. And I like to be behind, so I'm not feeling like I'm holding people back behind me. So I was just going along at my own pace. And then as the s- snow got really thick and suddenly I realized I was in a blizzard, at first all these emotions of fear and worry for my kids and all these things arose. It's almost like panic that, oh my gosh, it's snowing and I'm out here and we're so high up and blah, blah, blah. And then I just told myself to stop those thoughts and just settle, just give that some space. And what happened was I had this total release of surrendering responsibility for my entire family. (laughs) And I just realized how much as a woman and a mother, I'm always trying to control everybody's experiences somehow. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. oh, it's snowing. Does everyone have their coats on? Is everyone walking mm-hmm. safely? Does everyone have their water bottle? You know, how far ahead? Because Sophia is so small. Always thinking of everybody else. And in that moment, because I couldn't even see my kids, I didn't know exactly where anybody was. I just let go And I just felt this utter and complete freedom. And it was so joyful. I just started crying tears of joy. I just, I felt here, fully 
present in the moment without any worries or thoughts of the past or the future. So it was sort of a spiritual epiphany. Wow. And it allowed me to break some patterns in my parenting and think differently about my children who were at that point old enough, you know, transitioning from child to teenager. How old are they both? They were 10 and 14. That permission to no longer be responsible for their experiences. So it's like, I can bring the family to places, but the experiences that they have is up to them. I need to be aware of my experience. That's beautiful. Can they tell that you changed in that regard? Or is it more just a a shift in mindset for you? Like, are there things that you actually do differently now with them, you think? Well, naturally, because they just keep getting older and older. I mean, one went off to college. (laughs) That's, you know, really letting go of control. It's, it was more an inner thing for myself and a relaxing of a certain amount of anxiety mm-hmm. and worry that I was always sort of holding yeah. about them and my own ability to trust them more and trust reality more to hold them. That, it, you know, I'm, as my husband says, the sun will rise even if I'm not thinking about it. <laughs> oh, I like that. Excellent. This is great. This is going to be like help for anxiety. This I'm now realizing this is my added perk of this session here. Yes. <laughs> well, I will say that my overall motto for India travel is relax because absolutely nothing is under control. I feel sometimes so when people tell me to relax, it does not help me relax at all. But a story like yours about how you did it, that's something, right, yeah. that you can take that in your back pocket. You had a, a passage, another passage about how things were before you left, just to contrast. You said this whole American approach to parenting is whack. And then you tell your kids, 63, do you know what that number is? That is the number of times I feed you each week. Can you even believe it? 60 friggin' three. That is three meals a day for three people, seven days a week. And it is not even counted as a job. So talk to me about where you were and then where you came back. And then I'll talk about the middle journey. Yes. Well, So here's one piece in my story. So my sister lives in India and she she is a foreign correspondent and she had a baby. And before I took my whole family, I went to visit her after she had a baby. And she's a single mother in India. And I went to India with this idea that, oh, I was going to cook for her and I was going to tidy the apartment while she rests after giving birth. And I got there and she has a cook who's in the kitchen all day making food. She has a maid who's tidying the house. She has a driver who takes her where she needs to go. And this is normal in Asian culture for working women or women without extended family, without relatives who live in the home. And it just hit me how in America, mothers are so isolated and are expected to do so many people's jobs all by themselves. And how just wrong that is on so many levels, how unsustainable that is. And seeing how families operate in Asia, I saw that in America, the way we do it is really just a drop in the bucket of global humanity. Like women are not so isolated all over the world. And it just broke open this perspective. And a lot of people are talking now about emotional labor and the mental load of motherhood and how much women juggle. And I came back from my visiting my sister and I just thought, this just doesn't work. Of course this doesn't work. <laughs> it's not meant to work. One person is not meant to do so many things. And I just started realizing 
all the jobs that I do that aren't even considered a job. It's just completely taken for granted that mom knows where everything is. Mom knows where everyone's going. Mom knows what's going to be for dinner. Oh, mom works full time. Yep, because it's equality. It's equality between the sexes now. Men and women are equal, but not really. It's really hard to make that true in the home. So what can we do about it? Well, that's a great question. I'm not sure I have the answer. Yeah, that's um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... I'm not sure anyone has the yeah, answer. Yeah, I think, I think, well, when I look at my husband and I, I mean, we're a little older than you maybe. You know, we grew up in the 70s and feminism was brand new. You know, my husband's mother was a stay-at-home mom who cooked and had a nice dinner on the table every night with lipstick on for her husband when he came home and, you know, took her, her kids for ice cream sundaes after school. And that's his memory, you know, mm-hmm. of mom in the house. So, you know, change comes slowly. My husband and I, have, we've been working on it within our home really intensively since our India trip when all the issues about this really bubbled up for us. And I think talking about it is really helpful because I didn't even have the language to describe what the problem was Mm -hmm. until I went to India and saw that all moms all over the world are not being these super moms, you know, juggling six different jobs. Prior to that, I didn't even have the vocabulary. I thought the problem was really just me and Adam. You know, the problem was in my marriage. The problem was with me. So getting the perspective and having people talk about it and and talking about it, men and women amongst themselves and with the next generations. I mean, I think it is changing. I know it's changed a lot in my family, too. Yeah. Well, I've also interviewed a number of authors who are working on this (laughs) and changing gender stereotypes and responsibility of who does what. And it's definitely... A focus. It's um, in the cultural conversation right yeah. now, which is but fantastic. I'm not, I'm not sure, and I don't want to get off track because I want to hear more about your trip and talk about your book. But it's not like even if the dads did just as much, like, I'm not sure that's the answer either. I think it's this extended community situation. It's not yes. like, oh, if my husband took on 20 of those 63 meals, our life would be so easy. Like, do you know what I mean? Right. And I say that in my book at one point. Yeah. I, I feel this forgiveness towards us. It's like, it's not Adam, it's not me. All of this was never meant to be done by even just two right, people. Right. A, a huge home, a yard, the kids, all the you know, activities of community and society were expected to perform and provide. And I do think the answer is creating more of a village mm-hmm. and a community. And that for when we came back from India, that's something that we really invested in is our neighbors and creating a network of sharing and helping and support with our kids. And and that's been really wonderful. Probably better for the kids too. Definitely. Yes. Speaking of the kids. So when you were traveling all over, a couple times I started getting really nervous. Like, as I mentioned, I was reading this alongside my son as he was reading, which is sweet. And I would like read different passages and I'm like, oh my gosh, her daughter is throwing up against a window. Something really bad is about to happen. Like, what if the daughter doesn't get better? What does they end up? What's going to happen next? So you keep adding all these things where you would get sick or Adam would get sick or a daughter of yours would get sick. And I was like, should she be over there? What's she going to do? Like, I started worrying. Did you start worrying? Like, did you ever feel, and like when you were climbing down the mountain and you were so sick and I, it was just you and the girls and I'm thinking oh my gosh is she gonna make it like she makes it she made, I she's mean, I, stronger than she thought <laughs> well here's the thing 
So if we had just stayed home in the course of a school year, do your kids ever get sick? No, I know, I know. So yes, of course, of course, of course. So when you're traveling, they are going to get sick. And here, here's the thing. And because I had my sister in Delhi, she's lived in India for 15 years. She is healthy as anything. And, you know, we got a lot of advice from her about staying healthy. The bottom line is if you're traveling in the developing world, there are times when you're going to get sick and then you're going to get better. Mm-hmm. And that's just a reality. And we just kind of accepted that. Like everyone gets tummy upset in India if you're there for a while. I mean, even if you're there for a couple of weeks, you probably will. And most of the time, you just get better on your own. And because, I mean, I am a nurse and my husband's a doctor of Chinese medicine. I mean, we always knew that if one of us got really sick, you know, we'd go in for help, but we never needed to. I mean, we were never in the hospital or, or anything like that. Nothing was ever that serious. You know, the closest we came was little Sophia in that beach resort. But, you know, the problem solved and she was better. So I wasn't afraid of getting sick. Also, I mean, honestly, healthcare in India is, there's quite good healthcare. It's not like, oh, there's no doctors. You know, we're not somewhere where there's no doctors, there's no medicines. I Probably mean, better there's there. very <laughs> high quality. And yeah, there was a couple times, I mean, it, it didn't go in the book, like Sophia, she got something in her ear and, and we went to the doctor and he gave her these drops. And even that was such a little magical experience going and meeting the doctor and, and getting the care and it just being so smooth, you know, none of this paperwork, like in the United States, you know, you go to a doctor, you have to fill out 20 pages of paperwork and insurance and ID. In India, you know, you just go in and hand them a few dollars worth of rupees and sit and have chai with the doctor. And he looks at the problem, gives you a little medicine packet. It's, it's lovely. (laughs) Maybe I, maybe I should go there just for that. Um, Let's go back to your nursing and the fact that you're a midwife. I found, as I mentioned to you before, in the book, those were some of my favorite parts because I I haven't read that much about women who worked as, I mean, actually I read The Midwife like forever ago by Chris Bajelian. Did you read The Midwives? Mm -hmm. Anyway, but that was a long time ago. And I found it so interesting, the situations in which you found yourself, like going down these country roads and horrible storms and then the delivery and even all the detail. I just found it so interesting. And yet you end up sort of in trouble. And that is a theme that stays with you throughout this book. So tell me a little more about that. Yes. So I'm a certified nurse midwife, which means I'm a registered nurse and I have a master's degree also in nurse midwifery. And most nurse midwives in the United States work in hospital settings, but we are trained and licensed to work in home, hospital, or birth center. I became a midwife because I was very drawn to home birth. I read the book Spiritual Midwifery by Ina May Gaskin as a young woman, and it just sort of set me on the path of midwifery. And I was very blessed to serve as a home birth midwife in my rural Northern California community based out of Chico for a dozen years while my kids were growing up. And it was just a beautiful experience. I I got to be, you know, the town midwife, the community midwife, and so many of our friends, I got to attend the births of their children and just be such a part of the community. And I love home birth because I love giving women the opportunity to listen to their own bodies and do what they need to do. I mean, birth is a physiologic process. Mammals all give birth in privacy, in darkness, squatting on the floor, you know. And when you give a woman the freedom to 
find her way, that's usually how she will give birth in the home setting. And so then, of course, there's the whole political side of midwifery. It's very politicized because it's territorial. The obstetricians are very threatened by autonomous home birth midwives. And also, obstetricians don't really understand natural birth because the way they were trained is, you know, looking for complications. And so many births in hospital settings are not normal They because of the positions and the medications and the monitoring and the IVs. So most obstetricians can't even really imagine what a home birth is like. So there's a lot of political and who has the power, the doctors. So what happened in my community is vaginal births after cesarean sections were banned the same year I opened my home birth practice due to politics and insurance and bureaucracy, okay? So that right there was a really infringement on the rights of women. I mean, only in obstetrics can a patient not refuse surgery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. she is forced to have surgery. Think about that. It's crazy. You can't do that in any other branch of medicine. Like, I'm so, oh, yeah. your neck hurts? I'm sorry, you may not refuse surgery. Right. So I and most home birth midwives, when the vaginal births after C-section started getting banned, we continue to provide them in the home setting. And I will always stand by the fact that the most outrageously gorgeous births that I ever attended were V-backs because a woman who's given birth by a C-section with her first birth, who then goes on to have a natural birth at home and get to just hold her baby in her arms and land in her bed and be totally supported and respected and feel every sensation of that baby coming through the birth canal. There's Nothing more powerful than that rite of passage. And so I provided VBACs, not even that often, just a few here and there. Women had to find me and ask for them. It's not like I was advertising. But I had one that became a very complicated situation that actually had nothing to do with the VBAC, but there were other medical complications. And when I went into the hospital with that patient, The obstetricians were livid, and they wrote a letter, and they turned me into the board of nursing, who then came after me. As a result, I am not doing home birth at this time. Still? Oh. Well, I'm working in a women's clinic, which I absolutely love, and which is also extremely important in these times right now. Yeah. Providing reproductive health care. Yes. No, that's amazing that you're doing that. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. It's amazing. I just feel bad because I know you loved it. Yeah. It was... It's good. I'm I'm enjoying not waking up in the middle of the night. <laughs> <laughs> so now that you're back, just to close this chapter, you have this amazing journey, which you wrote about in a great way, like including letters from your daughter and like her diary, not letters, but like her diary entries and like just such a great way of showing it from a lot of perspectives. You came home. Now you're trying to leverage your neighbor's Anything else that you took away from the trip now that you're back that maybe we all could benefit from without having to take the trip? Yes, I developed my Mohs theory of parenting, Mohs theorem of parenting, which is that when the adults in the home are being creative and thriving, the children will naturally thrive as well. And so what I saw in families in India is that the focus is not as much on the kids and the kids' activities 
as it is in American families. And there's just more trust that if the kids are orbiting parents who are doing interesting things, the kids will also develop and be creative. So one of the things I did was just dial down all the expectations. And part of that was this forgiveness of myself and forgiveness to my husband for the difficulties that we'd had in the years leading up to that where I had these extremely high expectations. His parenting style was naturally a lot more low-key and go with the flow, and we weren't very good at communicating between those two styles and how to find that middle ground. So forgiving ourselves and forgiving myself for not being perfect and that there wouldn't be a homemade stew every night, and some nights the kids could just make themselves spaghetti and a salad and call it good. And so dialing back expectations, reaching out more into the community. And I mean, one thing that was so wonderful about our trip is that we were all together Mm -hmm. for this long period of time, whereas in so much of American life, each day, everybody's going in a different direction. You know, you have school, you have work, you have this activity, We'll all meet for 20 minutes here, and then we'll all go to bed and do it again tomorrow. Well, when you're traveling, your days are loose, you're all together. And how precious that was. I think we all appreciated each other more, and we all had grown so much closer through that experience. And just setting aside time to just be as a family without plans, without activities, is something that we started doing and we still do And that I would really recommend families do. That's excellent. Even if it means saying no to birthday parties, no to this, no to that. Like, it's really precious to hang out with the people that you love in an unscheduled way. And so what is coming next for you? Well, I'm probably going to start a book about my life as a midwife, my career as a home birth midwife. It's tentatively titled Rebel Midwife. And it's sort of in the development stage at this time. Excellent. I can't wait to read that one. Do you have any advice to aspiring authors? Yes. If you are inspired to write, just write. Stories are powerful medicine, and they are what hold our culture. The stories that we put out into the world shape and affect how we think as a community and a society. And it also can be very powerful for your own healing and your own transformation. You know, Anais Nin wrote that we write to taste life twice, once in the moment and then again in the retrospect. And I certainly found that true in the writing of this memoir. I got to relive my journey through India through and, you know, pouring through my journals and my daughter's diary and piecing it together. I learned so much more about what that trip was about through the process of writing. Because when you're traveling or living your life, everything's happening in real time. It's all happening so quickly. So writing is naturally a time for introspection and processing and integrating the experiences. So just write and don't worry about, you know, how will it get published and so forth. If you're feeling like writing, just write as a practice, write for the joy of it. Thank you. That was great. Thank you so much for coming on Moms No Time to Read Books. Thank you for having me. Of course. (laughs) This episode has been brought to you by Boombox Gifts, memory boxes filled with personal messages and photos from friends and family for your next special occasion. Boomboxgifts.com. Thanks to Ryan and Steve at Texture Sound for the audio editing and mixing. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. (laughs) 